The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's a pre-recorded broadcast on a topic that should be of considerable interest to a large, large measure of the audience. We are going to be talking about internment camps, and specifically internment camps in the United States, although there obviously have been many such instances and situations in the 20th century, 21st century, even and previously in other parts of the world. We have had a couple of broadcasts that touched on this particular issue, but we've not really dealt with it in North America. I have two specialists in the field. My first guest is Dr. Bonnie Clark, who is a uh, associate professor in the anthropology department at the University of Denver, and she serves as well as the curator of archaeology at the Denver Museum of Anthropology. Since 2005, she has led the University of Denver Amache Project, a collaborative endeavor that has been uh, dedicating and committing itself to preserving, researching, and interpreting Amache, the World War II Japanese-American incarceration camp in Colorado. My second guest is uh, Miss Judy Thomas, who is an instructor and project archaeologist with the Mercyhurst Archaeological Institute at Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, she has focused on historic archaeology largely, where and she teaches a variety of historic archaeological classes, including an archaeology field training course. And her research has pivoted into 20th century and World War II prison of war camps in Fort Hood, Texas. I want to welcome both of you to the program. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Let me start, uh, Bonnie Clark, by asking you what uh, brought you into this uh, subspecialty of internment archaeology, if we can call it that. What led you into it, and how did you get stimulated to do this kind of work? Well, my research has um, focused primarily on trying to understand um, how people live out their 
identity on a, a kind of daily basis in those sort of very routine decisions like how you dress and what you eat and what your house looks like. And so, and I've been particularly interested in how that happens in a time when those elements of your identity are under siege um, by things that, you know, are often not um, under your control. And so um, I added, when I started at the University of Denver in 2003, uh, soon thereafter, I became aware of the fact that the Japanese internment and, or incarceration camp here in Colorado um, had very good physical integrity as an archaeological site. And so I, um, I thought, what an, a wonderful situation to be able to, um, not that it was a wonderful situation when people were there, but as an archaeologist, <laughs> right. to be able to go in and say, here is a time when, you know, you were a farmer, and then suddenly you're an enemy alien, and that happens overnight, and then they are dropped into these camps, and what happens when that happens. Um, I was also drawn to working there for um, reasons of sort of heritage management, which was that the site was sort of slated to become a National Historic Landmark. And so my hope was that if we got in early with doing the archaeology that we could really help with, um, you know, preserving those really um, significant remains and also um, having that be an important part of the interpretive um, goals for the site. And Judy, I'm assuming based on your background that you have done similar types of work probably uh, in the southwest, in the vicinity of West Texas and uh, southwest? Yes, I um, I got into it a little uh, more of a roundabout way. Uh, here at Mercyhurst, we give two uh, field training courses a year. One is in historic and one is in prehistoric. And we like to do them together, although the sites are apart, the crews are kept together. So uh, we were looking for a place to do that, and we set up with Fort Hood back in 2003, their cultural resource program, uh, to do some research there and do our field training there. So while the prehistoric was working on a um, a rock shelter there, I moved over into a uh, first, I worked for two years on a farmstead, and then they asked me to look into the POW camps that had been established during World War II there. They were uh, pretty well gone, and uh, they didn't quite know where they were, and they wanted to you know, see if they were there and the extent of them and was their integrity. So I kind of went into it a little back way and uh, went from 19th century farmsteads and so on into the 20th century and the POW camp. I guess one of the interesting items here that uh, I think a lot of people would be interested in is the uh, obvious significance of the internment camps and the relatively large amount of publicity that they have gotten in recent years, and certainly in terms of compliance, archaeology now, in addition to being very unique figures, uh, elements of the archaeological landscape, they fall into the 50-year rule. And I guess I'd like to ask you, uh, Judy, if um, you are able to develop strong connections between the archaeological record and historical documentation as well as oral accounts because I imagine that there are still some survivors of that period and that place that you can probably gain access to. Is that true? 
Yes, yes. And you brought up a particularly good point uh, when you mentioned that there are people still left there. There are very few at this point. Uh, and except for Hawaii, there are no battlefields in America to visit or uh, remind us of the world, of uh, the World War II. So it's the people themselves who are holding the memories, and they're all in their, what, late 80s, 90s at this point? Sure. Uh, I discovered that very much so when we started work at Fort Hood, and I put out some feelers for trying to find any people who lived around there, which was around Gatesville and Killeen, Texas, and uh, there was nobody. Nobody came. Uh, they would be in old folks' homes or something like that. And the most interesting one, the only one that I found was a woman from Germany who, by the Internet, had found out we were excavating there and contacted me, and she had secondhand information. I was never able to get firsthand, but secondhand information of her great uncle who had been incarcerated at uh, one of the POW camps at Fort Hood, and uh, he had told her all his stories and gave her his memorabilia, which consisted of pictures and maps and things like that, which she shared with me. So that's the closest I ever got. The archival record is body. In some places I've discovered there were two there were two uh, internment camps at Fort Hood. And the one was very spotty and the other one had a lot more records. So it, the archaeology is very important to help fill in those little holes. Now the population at Fort Hood was it largely uh, German German citizenry, German American citizens? Is that who uh, occupied that area at the time, or served, or did Fort Hood serve as a catchment for those local populations? No, Fort Hood was installed. Uh, Fort Hood is very very large, and it was installed as an anti-tank training ground, and because it's so large and because it's located in a hilly district in an area that wasn't very good farming, they decided that this would be a good place for the internment camps, and when the, the World War II people were captured, they were supposed to be sent to uh, a camp, to a POW camp, that was similar to where they were captured. Unfortunately, the Germans were fighting in North America, I mean, North Africa, excuse me, in North Africa, and so they were sent to Fort Hood in Texas, which is hot and everything, so these uh, German uh, prisoners were not in a place that they were used to. They were more like in where they had been in North Africa. Right, of course. Bonnie, um, the uh, internment of the Japanese-American population is a story that uh, has gotten a lot of press in the past 20 years. There are films, there's documentary evidence, and this, is, this was a very substantial undertaking. I'd like to know what kind of research you've been able to uh, pursue, and specifically, as I discussed with, uh, with Judy Thomas, how you're able to integrate the oral historical record, the oral documentation, the historical records, as well as the archaeology in, uh, obviously, what was a very, very large undertaking uh, in the 1930s and for in the 1940s. Well, I have to say it's um, it's it's a daunting process because there are you know hundreds of memos that are uh, saved in the national archives. There's uh, camp schematics um, and maps. There's uh, directories, and the directories are, are, are kind of a critical piece of information for us because then we can start linking people to, to places and to the areas where we're doing our surveys and excavations. 
And then we have, um, we've done kind of consistent oral histories um, from the start of the project. And there's also a lot of oral histories that just already um, were pre-existing. And so we try to tie into those um, as much as possible. And then we have been really lucky to actually work with survivors, um, some of whom have really want, have really uh, wonderfully intact memories, others who were maybe younger and have more snapshot memories, but we have really benefited um, from that as well. And so we're, we, we try to layer all of this kind of information together, and, um, and there's a lot of it. I guess one of the interesting aspects that's come out of the work, especially of the, the, the Japanese-American population, is that we're, we're not even looking necessarily at first-generation. We're looking at second-generation Japanese-Americans who uh, were found, who, who were placed in this very, very unfortunate set of circumstances. And a lot has been made about their... Uh, their reactions, their responses. I'm wondering if a lot of that has been has been documented in accounts, diaries, and uh, written records. Or do you go through that and have you developed sort of a sense of of what that was like and 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 how their emotions have changed over the course of this period? Well, you know, the more I do this, the more I understand how Hello? kind of complicated and complex those memories are. And um, and as you noted, many of them were, you know, the majority of them were actually American citizens. They were at least second generation, some of them third generation. And so, but many of right. them were pretty young. <laughs> right. And so when they were in camp, one of the things that they recall is that um, there was a time of real, their parents were really protecting them. And so it was a time of real camaraderie, particularly for kids who might have grown up in rural areas where they didn't have a whole lot of other Japanese-American families around. And um, so, you know, they have these, um, you know, sometimes occasionally fond memories of camp. People who are older were well aware of how stressful it was on their parents and how much it was impacting their own futures. And so, um, you know, they have a kind of different and had at the time and also on reflection, you know, a kind of a different different sense of it. Um, but there's so many, you know, different stories, and almost all of them have there's at least a little bit positive in there um, along with the all of the, the sort of, you know, horrible um, circumstances as well. What do you know about the circumstances of the internments? Did they vary from place to place? I know that California was a major center, obviously, of population for uh, for the Asian Asian Asians, uh, Japanese in particular. Um, where were they distributed? What was the uh, what was the actual plan for the disposition of of these camps? Were they dispersed all over the West or California, Colorado, and uh, pla- and uh, places that were relatively remote? Well, they all needed to be relatively remote, but still on a rail line because you need to get a lot of people in there and you need to get a lot of supplies in there. Um, but they needed to be away from major population centers and away from munition plants. So they're, they, but they really are spread sort of throughout the west. Um, the furthest east are the two camps that were in Arkansas, um, but they go as far south as Arizona and as far north as up into Idaho. And, um, and they were, uh, you know, difficult 
depending on where people were coming from. But typically speaking, even the camps in California were not nearly as temperate as the, the areas that people were coming from, you know, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, San Francisco. So in the case of Colorado, the, some of the really strong memories that people have and things that come up time and time again when you read things like diaries from camp is about how difficult the weather was out here. Um, this is not the, the sort of lovely mountains of Colorado, but it's out on the far high plains, and um, the wind kind of never stops. It was a very sandy sediment um, that this camp was built on, and they destabilized that um, in an area that was just coming out of the Dust Bowl by bulldozing the entire mile square mile of where the camp was. And so people just remember kind of blowing sand all the time. And um, it was a, a kind of constant um, uh, irritation, uh, literally, um, in their lives. So these were pretty rugged conditions for people who came from much more temperate environments. It must have been a shock just to be out there in the physical environment. Yeah, I, I, it, it certainly was, and, and people kind of recall that. Um, it's, again, some of the strongest um, memories that they have. And we will be back with our very fascinate, fascinating discussion on the internment camps in North America during World War II after these words. Stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Sheldon Ryan with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are speaking about the internment camps of the 1940s in uh, the United States during the period of World War II when German and Japanese American citizens were interned at uh, relocation and, and uh, temporary housing facilities, if you will, uh, over the course of the war. And uh, my special guests, Dr. Bonnie Clark and Ms. Judith Thomas, are uh, doing excavations uh, of these camps that provide a new and uh, differently focused approach to the story that we're starting to piece together about what daily life was like uh, for the interned populations of displaced people in these United States at that time. Judy, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you actually develop a research design and a program for excavating and analyzing the archaeological remains of these sites that really are, uh, at this point, about 60 or 70 years old. Yes, I'd be glad to. Uh, what we did at Fort Hood, and as I said, there were two camps there. The one in the southern portion had been completely obliterated by the containment area that had expanded after the war, and the one in the northern section, which is the one that still has archaeological remains, is the one we started with. It had been bulldozed, raised, everything had been removed off from it by 1945. Uh, it was only it was only used for one year. And uh, then it was just completely raised down. So it had been just left abandoned, completely covered over with vegetation, as only Texas can grow. And uh, so it was a matter of just finding it first. And uh, we just kind of walked into the area using the archival research to find out where it was and what we were looking for, um, as, as uh, Bonnie Clark said going to the National Archives was uh, where you get all that information. Mm -hmm. And just starting and finding, we found a concrete slab, uh, completely grown over, but we found it and then just started clearing out and away from that until we had cleared about 3,000 square meters and just worked on that, uh, excavating and looking at and clearing and documenting then the next stage we did before we left that, that first year is we went and looked at the rest because we found where we were. So now we just looked and see, tried to see how much of the entire compound was there. This was a camp that had been built for 
3,000 people. So it was set up in three different compounds that were uh, separated by a gravel road. And uh, the 3,000 people, there would have been 20-some barracks there and, and um, uh, five latrines and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. we found some of it. Then we did a complete survey of the entire three compounds and tried to find out what was there. And it was amazing at how much was gone, how much was still there. And we were able to assess by observation in the other areas of where the archaeological resources could be still intact. Unfortunately, we only got one year at that POW camp because in 2006, there were two wars going on, and Fort Hood uh, Cultural Resource Program, those fundings get cut first, so uh, there was no way that they were going to be able to continue. But what we had cleared and established was, yes, that there was intact archaeological resources there, and that uh, if ever it was going to be impacted, that they would have to be addressed. And the excavations themselves proceeded with the aid of existing maps. I assume that there were reasonably good plans that survived. Uh, Unfortunately, for the one that we worked on, the northern one, it did not have a survived map. The southern one did. But what we had was an aerial photograph. And Uh there we were able to uh, locate other things and locate and go in where it was, and then it was just a matter of clearing and uh, cleaning, and it was all done by hand. We rarely used big uh, machines or anything like that. And being Texas in in the you know in the summer in the 100 degree heat, and it's just like Bonnie was saying, uh, all the the problems had to do with what the people had or ever wrote about uh, that we caught in the uh, archival research was about the weather. And it's, you know, 100 degrees and so on. So there was a lot of squealing or screaming when tarantulas uh, were found and uh, uh, eight uh, inch long centipedes would go flying by as Texas only has. And uh, then they would, uh, then the the crew would get their cameras out to take the pictures. So, but yes, we, we just started and cleared. And actually, what we were doing was setting up for continual work. The next year, we were going to expand and go into the area that uh, we had decided had the best uh, chances of uh, good material. Judy, ju- just as a point of interest, is it your feeling, or do you have any reliable information as to whether or not the geographic location? of this camp was designed to be remote because there was a fear that uh, that these populations would try to break out or, or to punish them, or was it just simply um, that was the most logical place to put a large group of people? It, well, it has a lot to do, I think, with all of that. Plus, uh, as Bonnie said, you have to be near a rail uh, line uh, to be able to get people in and out. The North Camp Hood was set up in the north because it was more rural. And many of the POW camps that were put in throughout America, uh, they were used for labor sources. And here in this agricultural area, all the men uh, had gone to war, so there were very few people left to 
do the um, harvesting, the planting, the timbers, the uh, railroad layings, and so on. And these POWs were used for that kind of labor. Uh, they would be brought out every day and then put back in at night. And uh, the, the, that was the plan for this. Unfortunately, it was such a rural area that there wasn't enough uh, work for the POWs. Um, there were 3,000 people there, and the documents showed that they were only like maybe 900 going out every day to do the work, which was the reason why they closed the North Camp, uh, was mm-hmm. there just wasn't enough work to keep them busy. Bonnie, what about uh, where you worked? Uh, was there uh, a research design that you followed that was based on any mapping information, locational information, and uh, distributions of facilities? And did you have that kind of guideline to proceed with your excavations? Well, our our plan from the get-go, and this is in part, again, because it was, by the time we started working there consistently, um, a National Historic Landmark was to really just begin to get a very good idea of what the resources were um, on the surface of the site as well as, you know, what our buried resources were. And then that kind of basic goal for, uh, for site management, then every year that we've been out there has been kind of oriented to a certain extent based on my own research, which is on um, the landscape and the modifications of the landscape that um, the um, incarcerates made um, specifically um, primarily gardening, although other uh, landscaping has been of interest to me. Mm-hmm. And then my um, and then my graduate students have had a sort of series of their you know different thesis projects. So I had one that w- a student who was interested in children. I had one who was interested in the way that women were coping with camp. We've had right. a thesis on surveillance, on artifact reuse. So all of those kind of sharpen what we've done. So what we do is we we started with the barracks blocks that had uh, based on a kind of reconnaissance work that was done in 2003 uh, that that had the highest physical integrity, but that also based on the um, on the camp directories, we were looking for people who were coming from different kinds of backgrounds. So at Amachi, we have people who are coming from the greater Los Angeles area, people who are coming from the more central valley of California, mm-hmm. and then folks who are coming from the northern central valley, the sort of you know Sacramento-type area, as well as um, places like Sonoma and Petaluma Coastal. And so we were trying to kind of capture that those differences potentially by choosing different barracks blocks. And we've primarily focused on the barracks blocks in part because we do have survivors. And so we want to be working on that while we've, you know, we can talk to people about the experience in those specific locations. Um, we also have looked at in where the, the elementary school was and we just this last summer um, surveyed the block that had the co-op. And so we always begin with two weeks of systematic intensive pedestrian survey. We follow that up with ground-penetrating radar in the areas that we think we might want to do some excavations, and then we, um, and then we do, te- uh, we do um, test excavations um, to finish up the field, field work. 
So you actually use ground penetrating radar for structural features? Uh, did you not have the benefit of maps, or did you want to uh, sort of co corroborate any uh, cartographic information that might have been there, or aerial photographic information that there was? Well, the actually, for the most part, we we can see where the where the barracks were because right. the foundations still remain. So the ground penetrating radar is really more for the landscaping, for right. um, gardens, and for other um, kinds of modifications. So. This this year, we used it um, to help locate the location of the sumo ring. Mm -hmm. So and these are the kinds of things that don't show up on the government maps because they're the modifications to the landscape that, that were made, made there. Right. And this oh. is, I assume, in eastern Colorado? Yes. It's far southeastern Colorado. So like Pueblo, that area? No. Uh, the nearest larger town is Lamar. It's okay. about two miles away from a town called Grenada. It's really actually only about 12 miles um, west of the Kansas border. I see. Okay, okay. That's pretty remote. Um, and I would imagine a complete transformation for people who are coming from uh, the Central Valley in California. It must have been a shock to the system. Uh, absolutely. Um, what is one thing, though, that having gone to visit some of the farms in the Central Valley is they also have, though, a very sandy soil there. Right. And right. I think that um, we see that their expertise in growing things is really being implemented um, in the gardens at the camp. And so, although in many ways it's a very different environment, there are certain things about it that they were able to, you know, kind of skills that they were able to transfer from one landscape to another. Well, in that connection, let me ask you this. Do you think that in the planning, um, the governmental planning for the distribution of the camps, any of these factors fed into the decision-making process by the government officials that actually designed these camps? Do you think they were at all sensitized to what people, what, what landscapes and environments people were comfortable with, that they would almost transpose them, transplant them from one place to another, and that they could actually transfer some of their capabilities and uh, gardening skills from one area to the other? Or did that just simply just work out that way? You know, I'm not certain. There is, there's some hints in the historic record, for example, that there were, because all of the camps were supposed to be self-supporting. So they all have farms um, and some of them ranches that surround them. And so those agricultural operations were, um, were really important in terms of the decision about where to locate the camps. And I know they did some soil testing. Um, I've never been able to track down the results of that, but I know that that was mm -hmm. part of the reconnaissance when they were trying to establish where camps were. But so, so it may have been that there was that connection there, but in a lot of times, you know, a lot of people also, you know, were not, they were, you know, um, you know, fishermen, for example, and, or, um, business sure. in Los Angeles. So, and, and you do get a cross cutting, you know, like the people from the San Francisco Bay Area ended up out in the, the deserts of the, of the Great Basin in Utah. So, right. um, and they also did actually mix up people from different areas, and that was actually done purposefully because they were trying to break up these population centers. So not everyone from Los Angeles went to the same camp. They, all, they got divided among all the camps, or many of the camps, I should say. 
was there do you think and and let me ask uh, let me ask you Judy first on this was there a master plan a design plan to break out communities to disrupt their economies to disrupt their communities and simply move them to a convenient place or was there uh, was there more thought that went into this if 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 we're to consider that there might have been a humane element to this what are your feelings on that Judy um all right i, I guess i will have to ask you are you speaking of the neighborhood that they, they put the camps in, or are you talking about the people who are incarcerated? Uh, both, really. All right. The, in, at Fort Hood, um, it's a, a large, large area and was very rural, and so I think that was the choice. They needed to train people uh, with the tanks, and because it was so large, it was large enough to incorporate two uh, in car- uh, two camps, two POW camps. I don't know whether there was that much more thought, other than what I had mentioned that they, where the where the uh, people were were caught, you know, uh, captured. I guess is the word I'm looking for, captured right. in that kind of of an area. Then they would be sent to something similar. So therefore, people for, that were captured in North Africa, they're sent to to Texas as opposed to somewhere up north where the climate would be different. I I don't know whether that was a, uh, yes, it was. It was supposedly a specific way that they were going to uh, disperse them. I do know that there were nothing but Germans. There were no Italian ones or so on. So there, there is that. Uh, they did try to get German interpreters, uh, German chaplains, uh, so on, that would be working there. So I do think that they were thinking, they weren't mixing them up from the right. different countries. And we'll be back with our final segment on the internment camps in North America during World War II after these words. Please stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Can you dig it, 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 d
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're uh, discussing the legacy and the archaeological elements of the internment camps during World War II uh, in the western United States with uh, two archaeologists, historic archaeologists, who are working on projects related to the internment. They're doing archaeological excavations as well as historic research and oral histories of the people who lived there at that time. Um, Judy Thomas is looking at a population of uh, German prisoners of war who were interned in uh, Fort Hood. And uh, Bonnie Clark is working on uh, a variety of sites, I I think, in the Western United States that were basically the resting, the the, uh, internment location of uh, Japanese-American populations, and uh, that is certainly a story that has gotten a lot of press and documentation coverage in the past 20 years. Um, These are clearly very different populations, and the archaeological record would presumably reflect that. But I do want to ask both of you, you first, Bonnie, um, do you get the sense that in the Japanese-American camps, it was more of a prison-like atmosphere or more of simply a resettlement type of atmosphere that uh, was structured uh, in terms of the actual place that uh, the Japanese-Americans lived? Well, it was certainly in the fact that there were guards and guard towers and searchlights and barbed wire and that you needed a path to come and go, it had that prison element to it. Uh, however, again, people really kind of tried to cushion and buffer that um, in a lot of different ways um, so that over time t- that it felt more like a city and less like a prison. And, you know, planting trees, making walkways, having dances, um, doing, having clubs and a newspaper, those sorts of things help to, um, to sort of soften that and, uh, and, and, and turn it into something that felt, felt more like a community and, and, and less like a prison. Um, and those efforts are almost entirely um, derived from the population themselves. So it sounds in many ways more like one of the displaced persons camps in Europe after World War II. Well, in 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 certain ways, um, in others, though, the fact that there was no decision to be there, um, and so um, you know they were displaced into um, those camps. Correct. Um, so, Judy, uh, you're obviously dealing with a totally different population here, uh, German prisoners of war, which is uh, clearly, uh, I, I, I assume most people would think that this is much more a prison-like atmosphere. And uh, can you give us a little bit of information on how that was? Were there uh, extensive fortifications, watchtowers, barbed wire? Uh, how was that, and what was uh, what was the daily uh, the daily routine over there? 
Yes, you're absolutely right. It was definitely, these were prisoners for sure. They had the double barbed wire, the watchtowers, and so on. And there was no going off the uh, outside of the fortifications, the wire, without uh, special permission. Uh, they would be usually taken by guards, and those would be the people who would leave to go and do the work, uh, the daily work. They'd be gone six days a week, and they'd just eight hours, and then they would come back. But there was definitely, it was definitely a prison, and they were definitely uh, soldiers of war. There are a couple of accounts about there were some very rabid Nazis at there, and they would try to cause trouble. And uh, eventually, those uh, people who had those real um, firm beliefs would be sent somewhere else. And because they became to the point where this camp uh, that was here for just that one year was, was a lot of trouble because there was a lot of problems with the people there. One of the interesting things that came out, because they are Germans, is they were very, very tired of what they were always getting, and they asked for more potatoes. Uh, there were not enough potatoes. They, wanted, they asked to have their diets uh, tailored towards them. There were gardens they put up. They also did theater productions. Uh, they did education. And these were all things that the Army pushed that these people should do, trying to keep them um, uh, occupied. But they were definitely prisoners. There was no doubt about that. Uh, any history of attempted escapes or any violent episodes, anything like that? Yes, uh, there were several escapes, and in fact, that's the one lone photograph we have of the of the North Camp Hood. It was documenting where they had escaped over the wire or through under the wire, where it was. There were six or eight people that had gotten out, but they all were recaptured, uh, and they were all brought back. And one of the more interesting ones what, that were documented was it was the first case of sabotage. Uh, somebody who was on a work camp, and they were working along a railroad line, uh, and they were putting gravel in some of the engine wheels or something like that, but they were caught and punished. And these people would be punished. I mean, they would be uh, rations taken away and confinement and uh, so on. But, yeah, there, it was, a, it was um, not easy, although they, with the theater productions and sports, they had a recreation area where they played uh, soccer, their uh, football, and um, this was part of the memorabilia that I got from uh, the woman from Germany that her great uncle mm -hmm. had left, was that kind of information. Uh, in that regard, Judy, one of the questions I would have, and, and, and this is something that I think fascinates a lot of people who are interested in archaeology, historical archaeology in particular, did you find as a result of your excavations, did you come up with information uh, qualitatively, quantitatively information that wouldn't otherwise have been picked up if you simply had oral accounts and historic records? In other words, does the archaeology cast a different light or provide any uh, real major information other than what what could get from the his, from the history books and from the oral accounts? Oh yeah, I definitely think so. Um, mainly uh, for our short time there at uh, at North Camp Hood, uh, we were able to document where everything was in the in the building that we uh, were excavating around and. and was the infirmary, 
and uh, we were able to uh, even get the interior plan of the infirmary left over on the slab, uh, which was uh, interesting. Um, And probably the neatest little artifact that brought personally uh, was the boot scraper. It was a boot scraper that was right outside where the walkway would come in, and somehow that just brought it a lot more personally. Uh, there were, there were, for North Camp Hood, there is a lot of information that would have to become from archaeologically because it was so short-lived and there is not nearly the archival documentation uh, and history of that place as there is with the, uh, the southern camp, which ocu- was occupied for the entire war. And, uh, Bonnie, as far as you can see, is I mean, obviously your uh, type of research is, is a little grander in scope because you're looking at, at a, I think, a much larger scale of site type, if you will. Um, what kind of information have you picked up that would not otherwise be known to us through historic accounts and, and oral histories? Well, one of the things that we've been able to do is, is very intensive garden archaeology at the camp. And um, the gardens are absolutely, um, they surprise me every time we um, are done with them. And one of the, the things that is, you know, really not documented in the record but is so obvious when we excavate these gardens is, is the intensive um, effort that was put into them in a place that, you know, no one wanted to be. Everyone was hoping they could leave soon, and yet they took care of that um, that land in this very intensive way. And um, one of the ways we've been able to capture that is through soil chemistry. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we see is that um, even, you know, the 70 years have passed, is that there's a higher nutrient content in the garden strata than there is in the strata below or um, above or in our test plots. And so we can see their their care for that soil. Um, Chemically, we also see it in things like um, uh, crushed eggshell. Um, And then the pollen and the macrobotanical remains are just phenomenal. So we see that they've, you know, some things that you might expect, um, like roses, but then also... um, uh, members of the of the prunus family, which would be you know cherries and plums, and those are of course of deep um, traditional importance to the, to um, Japanese gardens and Japanese aesthetics. Uh, we found cattail, we found canna. Um, we're also seeing that they're transplanting um, kind of some of the prettier of the local plants and putting them into their gardens. And so the sort of depth uh, and intensity of the of the gardening is something that, you know, we see it in the pictures, but what we don't see in, is that sort of care for even the balance of the, nu- the nutrient balance of the soil, which is something that we recover, as well as understanding the wide variety of, um, of the different materials that they're using and and are recovering those, one of the things we're seeing is how to be able even to make one little garden in front of your barrack means that you need to make connections across the entire community because many of the materials wouldn't have been available to everyone. So we see, you know, the recycling of um, of things that should have been taken out to the trash and dumped out outside, and yet they're they're being, you know, repurposed. So, for example, we have broken sewer pipe that's being used as planters. Um, and we had another garden where they were actually using what I think could only be slag from the blacksmith shop. 
to mm-hmm. add iron to the soil because it turns out that concrete leaches iron out of soil. And right. all of these barracks are, have concrete foundations. So these gardeners were, um, were somehow getting a hold of, and, and, and they didn't work at the blacksmith shop. So uh, they were using those connections to help to um, create these gardens. There was, in the early 20th century, a, a long history, I think, of uh, Japanese gardening in California um, that I assume probably was carried over into these camps. Is that correct? Ab- absolutely. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting is that they're very much, you know, some of these are very traditional Japanese gardens, but some of them are very, you know, Japanese-American gardens. And a, right. a sort of a hybrid between the American front yard that many of these <laughs> Um, and, it, and it was mostly gentlemen um, who were, the men who were gardeners um, are sort of transplanting and 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 and, and kind of uh, in, reinterpreting um, in camp. Right, but it it all stems from an old world culture where gardening was clearly a major component of uh, of vocations and, and, and lifestyles and working. And I'm guessing that you did uh, find high contents of, of carbonates and and calcareous deposits in in the soils there because uh, that, w- that was one of the ways that these so, uh, these soils were prepared for gardens as well as some of its acidic components as well. So you're, you were doing sort of traditional soil chemistry to identify plots and that sort of thing and, and to identify where these gardens were. Yeah, the primarily the the gardens um although there's some of them are pretty subtle in terms of what remains um the the soil chemistry um we haven't used it to actually discover the location of gardens um but we have used it within you know, sort of gardening spaces once we've identified them, um, as well as then, of course, testing other areas like where the barracks were and then off-site just so that we have controls. Um, will you be going and, and continuing with this work? Is this a long-term project? Or? Well, that's, that's the hope. Um, we've had four field seasons, and um, we've had a lot of support um, from funding agencies, particularly here in Colorado, as well as through my university. And so, yeah, the, ho- the hope is that we'll, we'll go back in 2016. And have a, here's another question that, that has always fascinated me. When, when you do this type of archaeology and you can sort of bridge the demographics of the site with the existing populations, it's not, it's not really that much time. Have you seen any interest in uh, Japanese Americans in this kind of work? Yes, we've been very lucky. Every we've had four um, field schools, and every single field school we've had um, at least one survivor and one descendant um, who's worked with us as volunteers. And our last field season was just this last summer, and we had twelve folks wow. who spent at least a week with us. And so um, we've yeah we've had a lot of of interest. Um, we also have a, an open house day where we invite people to come back and and um, kind of reconnect both with the place and, and with each other. And um, although you know the history of Japanese American internment has you know it's been more in the media. There were years and years that nobody talked about it. And Clearly. so they yeah. and especially people who've experienced this, their families often didn't talk about it. So they can come back. They can actually experience the physical of the place and then reconnect to other people who also had that experience. 
experience. And the archaeology provides a kind of an opportunity to do that because we're, you know, we're there and we can help, you know, interpret and, um, and, and work with the sort of physical remains. And then they help us with understanding, you know, that emotional side of the story. And uh, Judy, I'm guessing that there is no such parallel in no. terms of, <laughs> in terms no. of the German American population exactly. in the United States. Exactly. That that that's not happening. Um, no, that's not going to happen. Is there any chance that uh, you will be continuing your work? I would love to. I would love to be able to. I always felt that we just we just put our toe in the water there, and we were going to be moving on to the area that we had identified. And uh, but at this point, uh, there has been no um, no outreach from Fort Hood. Uh, they are still kind of kind of tied up, and I know the cultural resource program there is struggling. Yeah, and it used to be it used to be a really large program. Yes. Yeah, and uh, they're just. Uh, they're still working at it, though. They're still there. And on that note, I'm afraid we'll have to bring this very fascinating discussion to a close. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Bonnie Clark of the University of Denver and uh, Ms. Judith Thomas of Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania, for participating in this very intriguing program of the internment camps in the United States during the very, very pivotal period of World War II. Thank you so much for appearing on the program. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And on that note, I would like to bid everybody good evening. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.